envious. I'm a little envious of that. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Excellent. Have you, uh, uh, I'm not looking for a show of hands. This is to help you think a little bit. Have you ever been in a situation where you, the, the opportunity presented itself to bring Christ into the discussion, and yet you found yourself lacking courage to do that? You ever been there? Or maybe after the fact you realized that you had a great opportunity um, to visit with somebody, but boy, it's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to know how to engage people because of a lack of courage. I, uh, I, some of you know the story. I, I remember as a young missionary, uh, this actually changed my life, changed my whole thought process about what's going on. And I was uh, doing graduate work, my first foray into uh, seminary life. We were in Germany, living in Germany as missionaries. And um, I had, so I was doing long distance education. And so I had to share the gospel with three different people and write down what happened and send it back to a professor in the United States. And so I went to the army post and went down to the Burger King at lunchtime because I figured there'd be a lot of people that didn't know Christ. You know, boy, a lot of people to share with. So I walked in and ordered a Coke and sat down and hamburger. And, and I'm looking around and I see an E6 sitting across the other side of the restaurant. So I got up to walk over to talk to him about Christ. That was my assignment, right? So I walked over and as I got to the table, I, all my courage left me. Turned right around. <laughs> Walked over and filled my Coke thing back up and sat down and felt a little embarrassed. So I thought, all right, I can do this. So I got up and walked over the second time, got right to the table, lost my courage. Went right back to the Coke machine and filled it up a second time. So now I've had a bunch of Coke with a lot of caffeine. So I'm sitting at the table thinking, this is crazy. I'm a missionary. I get paid to do this. So I got up and said, I'm determined to do it. And the place is packed. So I walked over, and I said, excuse me. I said, uh, if you have a moment to talk, I'd like to talk to you about uh, your faith. I don't know if you have a faith. Uh, I am um, raised as a Christian. He said, oh, sit down, sit down. He's an E6, and he said, I'm getting ready to deploy in a couple of days. I've been awake for a week all night thinking about my six children. Can you tell me what's going to happen to them if I don't come back? And then all of a sudden, I, I felt almost a sense of shame, like, wow, my own pride got in the way of someone that the Lord had already prepared, already prepared. And I had a chance to share Christ and have a fantastic conversation with this man. Um, that was many years ago. So there's one where I took the initiative. I wasn't given the choice. If I wanted to pass my class, I had to do it, but that's what I did. Then yesterday, I did a wedding right here with a couple in our church. And uh, after the wedding was over, the, uh, one of the people in the wedding party, she came up to me and she said, I really enjoyed meeting you. And I enjoyed the words that you had to say. I've never heard that before. And I said, oh, uh, you should come tomorrow. And she said, what's tomorrow? And I said, church. And she said, church? I've never been to church. That's our culture. If you had told some of us who are a little older 30 years ago that that would be the norm, we would have laughed. 
I've never been to church. And I said, oh, well, you should come. It'll be fun. I'm not going to tell you if she's here or not. But I will tell you this. At the end of the time when everybody's milling around, picking up stuff, and uh, she's sitting in the back with her boyfriend. They opened up one of the Bibles in the pew there in the seat. And they found, they looked up where I was reading from, and they were reading it. I had never heard that before. That's a culture that we live in. That's a culture that we live in. And I am, I don't know if the word's privileged. I don't know what the word is to describe it, but I'm on the front lines watching the church in our country lose its courage. I'm watching it happen. It's a remarkable thing. I never thought that would be possible, but it's happening. We're losing our courage. We're frightened. We're nervous. Scared. Divided. We argue. We're hostile. We fight. We pray. But we're losing our courage. We're losing our courage to talk about what's important to us. We don't have to fight about it. Not with our culture. But it's important that we engage our culture with what's important. They have no other way to learn the truths unless we are the ones to share with them. And honestly, I don't appreciate some of the people that represent us in the news, some of the pastors. Just being very honest with you, you can ask me later what I mean by that. I think we need to represent ourselves. But we're losing our courage. Today we're actually going to talk about a church that has lost, is losing, in the process of losing its courage. But first... Several of you have known, I'm reading Oz Guinness, and again, our small group is, the elders read it last fall. If you haven't read it, Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times, he wrestles with some of these questions in the middle of his discussion here. He's really asking the question, what's going on in the 20th and 21st century world in the West, and what is our responsibility as a church to, to bring our, not to recapture the West, but to bring our truths back onto the table. So he asked the question, do we really need God to change the world? Do we really need that? Or is God expecting us to do it on our own? I don't think you expected the second part of that. Do we really need, do we really need God to do it? Or is he expecting us to do it? Where do we draw the line between our trust in God and our reliance on our God, our own God-given wisdom and capabilities? After all, it is God who made us resourceful, and it is God who calls us to be entrepreneurs of life, maximizing our God-given gifts and multiplying the opportunities given us in life. Ours is unquestionably an extraordinary generation. We can put someone on the moon without God. We can market a car or a perfume without God. We can even grow a church without God. We have cracked the codes of our own DNA and of mystery after mystery. We can devise ways to accomplish tasks earlier generations could only dream of. So do we really need God to transform our societies and change our world? 
Is God not expecting us to use the best of modern wisdom and get on with it? It's asking the question. And by the way, this is the challenge, I believe, the hardest challenge of church leadership is navigating between our wisdom, which we have a lot of it, and God's direction. I'm not any smarter than you. I don't have a crystal ball sitting on my desk. Vision doesn't start with me. It actually starts with you. You know how that works? I just said a minute ago that uh, our staff is connected to so many of you and your families, and we listen. We listen. For example, one of the questions we ask ourselves regularly as a staff every couple of months is, what are the marriages that we have here that, are, that may be in trouble or not happy with the way things are going? And some of you know what happens when I get that answer. I pick up the phone and call you. Some of you have been the beneficiary of that phone call said, hey, our staff was praying for the congregation today, and it came to my attention that maybe your marriage isn't as good as you want it to be. I'd love to take you to lunch and see how I can help you. We pay attention to that. We listen to the cries for parenting help. We listen to the fears that you have. And so vision begins to form because we have ears all around the congregation listening. And I believe that's how the Holy Spirit works. And that's the question he's raising here. He goes on. We recognize that brilliant and bold, though our best thinking and actions may be, the kingdom of God is quite simply that. It is God's kingdom and not ours. It is God's kingdom. So it advances in God's ways and not our ways. God reminded his people of this through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The point is not that God's thoughts are unknowable. That's not the point. The point is that they are different than ours. They're higher than ours, and therefore they demand that we follow him and not simply our best ideas. And I would add to this, we follow him and not, be- not simply our ideas and the best ideas of the world. I always have to be careful. Exactly how God's ways relate to our ways is a mystery that we must not expect to fathom here and now. Here we see through a glass darkly, but it is a mystery that enlightens the partnership to which we have been recruited. Do you realize that we are in a partnership with the Lord? You've heard me say there's no billboard out there. Let me tell you about God. God is glorious. There isn't one. Most billboards that have religious stuff on them, they just make me cringe, cringe inside. Except for the one a couple of years ago when a guy in South Florida prophesied the end of the world, gave a specific date and time. I don't know if you remember that. And uh, the day after, when the world didn't end and we're all still alive, a church with a sense of humor up north made the national news, stuck up a billboard. That was awkward. That's a church. I don't know anything about it, but I would love that church. And for parentheses, only the Lord knows the day and the hour. That was awkward. So it is a mystery that enlightens the partnership to which we have been recruited. 
God is sovereign and his kingdom advances in his own ways. But we are significant and while we do not always know the ways that God is using, it is our part in the partnership that we must pursue with energy, humility, and trust. That's what we must do. Courage. We're in a series, To the Victor Goes the Spoils. We're looking at the seven churches in Revelation and looking at the concept of victory. And uh, we're looking at the seven churches in Revelation because each one concludes with, to the one who is victorious. Most of the words of victory occur that are in the New Testament occur in Revelation. This is the book that develops victory more than any others. So remember where we've come because these letters, they're fantastic. They're giving us a road map down the middle, what to avoid on either side. Okay, so we started off in chapter 2 of the church at Ephesus, and here we talked about abandonment, abandoning our first love. Abandoning our first love, that is the core from which everything we do should flow. Jesus reduced the entire Mosaic law, 613 commands, down to two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul reduced it down to one. Love your neighbor as yourself. So love is the core. New commandment I give you that you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have right doctrine. No, that's not what it says. If you have love for one another. That is the absolute irreducible core of our Christian faith. And they had abandoned their first love. So we are committed to not doing that. Then you have the church at Smyrna. We talked about distraction. This was a distracted church. It's so easy in our world to be distracted if we're not careful. I mean, the political scene right now is in great upheaval and confusion, and it is very distracting. And I've talked to several of you that are wrestling with that. I've talked to lots of people out here in bars and coffee shops that are wrestling with that as well. It's very easy to be distracted and anxious and worried and all those things. And we serve... The one true living God, don't we? We serve a sovereign God. We can relax. The Supreme Court is not my responsibility. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) The President and the Congress is not my responsibility. Thank you, Jesus. I pray for all of them. But I'm not going to lose sleep and get anxious over them. God has that figured out. And then we went from there to the church in Pergamon. We talked about cultural assimilation. If we're not careful, when we move out into our culture, we begin to look like culture. We begin to assimilate into their ways of thinking if we're not careful. We don't want to do that. We are committed to our doctrinal statement handed down to us from the early church on, codified by our forefathers. I read our doctrinal statement regularly. You hear me talking about it. Sometimes you probably don't even realize that. But I have our doctrinal statement almost memorized. We are committed to honoring and staying close to that doctrinal statement. We're not going to assimilate. Then we went from there to the church in Thyatira where we talked about cultural compromise. What happens when the church, I mean when culture comes in here? If we're not careful, we'll compromise in here. And quite honestly, this is not really a risk, but it is a challenge we're facing. We're going to talk about this at the congregational meeting. As we have more and more young families making their way into our church, they're bringing with them the brokenness that comes from being in the world. And, and you know what the truth is? I need your help. 
I need your help. Because here's what happens. We have a young couple that's marriage is struggling, and we help them. And guess what they do? They go tell their friends. And their friends come. Pretty soon there's too many. Not too many. That's not the right word. Pretty soon there's not enough. No. What I mean is pretty soon there's too many for just a few of us to handle. And the reality is I, some of you with gray hair that have been around the Christian block 47 times, I need your help. I really need your help. I love our young families. I love our young marriages. I love our young singles. But there's a lot of them. And so what we need to do is as they come in, help them transform. And that's a redemptive and very slow process. It takes a long time. It requires patience. So then we talked about the church in Sardis last week. This is a church who fell asleep at the wheel right off the road. If we're not careful, if we fall asleep, we go right off the cliff. We're not going to do that. Our elders and staff and, and all of our members are very committed to keeping us on the course. And I'm grateful for that. Sometimes we fight a little bit. Sometimes we argue. And that's okay. It's all good and healthy. But we're staying the course and what we believe to be true. So today, we're in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, in the church of Philadelphia. And this is a church that's right on the brink of losing its courage, I believe. And I actually feel this is probably a place where we're at risk, losing our courage. Let's just read it. Chapter 3, verse 7 of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens, uh, What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Okay, in every other letter, the opening statement goes right back to chapter 1 where Jesus is described. This one's a little trickier, but you can still find evidence of what he's referring to here. So he calls him the words of the one who is holy and true. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. He is witnessing to the truth of the gospel and the one true living God whom we serve. His name is Yahweh. He has revealed himself in his son Jesus and in his Holy Spirit. His witness is true, and we are called to be his witnesses. That's what that that word is used all the way through the Bible. You know why? Because the Bible portrays what's happening in our broken world as a grand lawsuit. And we are God's witnesses. He calls us to the witness stand every day in the way we live our lives. That's why that, that word is used all the way through. You see it all through Isaiah. You see it in Jeremiah. You see it in the New Testament. We are witnesses. God is putting you on a witness stand. <clears throat> That's what's happening with your life. You may not realize that, but that's exactly what he's doing. It's what he did with Job every day. That's why we, we say to you regularly, it is important how you live your lives. This is important because you are a witness on the stand and God is using you to show his grace, what his grace looks like. He is. Well, then the next thing he says about him is that he's the one who holds the key of David. And if you look over in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So he holds those keys, and here he says he holds the key of David. In other words, Jesus has the master key, folks. He has the key that unlocks every door. Death, Hades, David, all of that. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. I've said to you many times, Jesus is in our midst right now. Because the very next thing he says is, I know 
your deeds. Isn't that great? Can you imagine for a second being a two-year-old, a three-year-old, or a four-year-old and not having a parent that's involved in your life? Uh, we actually have more of that going on now than we ever needed in our culture. That's becoming more reality than it should. How would they know? How, who's going to praise the kid when they do well and who's going to correct the child when they need it? I am so grateful that we have a Savior that walks in our midst and He laughs with us and He corrects us. He guides us. Isn't it great having that kind of Savior? We have nothing to fear. We have a God who will help us. He will. When we get off the rails, He just brings us back. Our part is to remain humble. So, he holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 22, where he brings Eliakim, one of the kings, and he says, this is my servant, who I have now put like a, I'm driving him like a square peg into a round hole, it says in Isaiah, to drive him firmly in place. And he holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So what God is saying to the ancient Israelites is that I have put someone in place that will open the appropriate doors for you. Now it's being applied to Jesus. Guess what? Jesus is the one who decides which doors open and which doors close. This is not uncommon. We see it all the way through. In fact, in Paul's missionary journeys, there's times when he says, I I wanted to go to this place, but the Holy Spirit closed the door and kept me from going. I couldn't go. This is the role that the Lord plays. He decides which doors to open and which ones close. And so here's what he's to close. And here's what he says in verse 8. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Why would God open a door for us? Why would he do that? To walk through it. That takes courage. And by the way, this is also true in your individual lives. When you're sitting with a friend who just found out they had cancer, maybe they're going to die. Maybe they've lost someone. Maybe the pregnancy is going backwards, going sideways. Maybe they just got terminated from their job. Maybe they just won the lottery. It doesn't matter. When you're sitting with someone and that door creaks open do you have the courage to walk through it it's a simple question do you have a faith background my faith background is Christian I'd love to know what yours is and the conversation and the journey starts is there tension there not at all and some of you I know are already doing this and the conversation begins and the journey starts do you know Jesus You'll be surprised how many people will not get angry and will not mock you because they simply don't know, just like this young person yesterday. I've, I've, I've never been to church. I've never heard these things that you're saying. That's the culture we live in today. So he says, I have opened a door before you. So the question I have, we as a church, do we have the courage to walk through the door? I already mentioned one of the open doors. We have young people coming to our church. They need our love. They need our compassion. They need our gentleness. 
they need us journeying with them in their marriages and in their families, I need you. I know that you have little strength. I love that because I feel that's where we are nationally as a church. I know that you have little strength. I don't know what it is that sapped their strength. I have an idea. But something did. And our energy is low. We're a little timid. We're a little frightened because of what's happening around us on the news. Just forget all that. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. In other words, they were faithful. There it is. Stay the course. Let's stay the course. And how many times have you heard Mark and me and others up here say that? In various ways. Stay faithful. Stay the course. Then he goes on. This is very similar to an earlier letter. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. This is not a statement against Jewish people. This is a statement against people who are pretending to be Jews and who are fighting these Christians. Now picture this in this little town here. Uh, it's actually a pretty good-sized town. Okay, you have, a, uh, you have a Jewish community that we know now is thousands of people. It's very big. Lots of buildings, lots of structures, lots of civic structure around them and all of that. And you have this little tiny church that's probably at most is a, just a few dozen people. They're surrounded. Everything against them, everything is going against them in this culture, everything. You know, the God of this town, Philadelphia, is the God Bacchus, Bacchus. Uh, he was kind of a fun God because uh, he's seen as an outsider. Because he wasn't born of two gods, he was born of Zeus and a physical mother. And so he's kind of seen as a foreigner, and guess what he's the God of? Wine. This is right in the middle of a wine valley where they live. Of course they're going to pick this God, you know? And he brought with him lots of fun and partying and freedom. Of course they love this God. And you have this little tiny church who's got on both sides coming at them uh, the tendency to, to give up and abandon it. You got this Jewish synagogue saying Jesus is not the Messiah. They've abandoned their own, their own theology. They've given up on their own theology. And then you have the rest of the people saying, it doesn't matter. Have fun. No wonder they're tired. Our culture is shift, quickly shifting to where we're becoming the minority. Only 7% of this county professes to be Protestant. We're the minority. Are you tired? Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, so I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole earth to test the inhabitants of the earth. So these, these people are going to bow down. By the way, that's a biblical concept from the very beginning. All those nations who rage against the Lord, one day they're going to bow down. They're going to bow down. We're going to talk about that in just a second. He says, I am coming soon. This God, by the way, Bacchus, he's the God of epiphany, which means he shows up for the purpose of having fun. And Jesus says, no, I am coming soon. Hold on, I am the true God. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Okay, pause. You see, this town, Philadelphia, about 50 or 60 years before this, had a major, major, major earthquake. Devastated it. This town was known as Little Athens. It had temples everywhere. Everywhere had temples. And they all came crashing to the ground. They had to get a grant from Caesar to rebuild the temples. Destroyed the whole town. 
We saw that a couple years back with Kathmandu, didn't we? I was there right after it. Brought him to the ground. And what does he say? He's using language they would get, this little tiny church. I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. It's safe. It's not going to fall to the ground. This is the imagery he uses at the end of the book to talk about the New Jerusalem and the temple that's eternal. By the way, that's us. We are the spiritual temple. It's never going to crash to the ground. And you get to be a pillar in this temple. You get to be a pillar. And here's what happens. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. So what he explains later on, Revelation 21 and 22, the New Jerusalem. So each of you are a pillar and you have the name of God written on you. Then he goes on and says, the New Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven and I will also write on them my new name. Jesus has a new name. You know what that is? Philippians 2, at the very end. At the name of Jesus, that's not new, he was given that at birth. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? Lord. In the Old Testament, that's the, tie, that's the name of God, Yahweh. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is is the true God, Yahweh. That's his new name. So, each of us are a pillar. We have the name of the new Jerusalem. That's who we belong to. The name of the true God and Jesus' new name, Yahweh. In other words, we believe in this true God. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How's your courage? Do you have the courage to walk through the door? Guinness, at the end of his book, he puts in here the uh, Evangelical Manifesto. That was written by a whole group of uh, scholars and pastors from around the country. You can look it up on the website, the Evangelical Manifesto. Uh, I subscribe to it. I hold to it. I proudly use the term evangelical uh, only because it's a term that is bringing such ill repute right now on the church and being used with disgust, almost like a curse word, and I'm on a mission to recapture it because it is a good word. Do you know there are over 30 million evangelicals that are part of the National Association of Evangelicals? Most of them are quiet, going about their business like you are, loving the Lord, loving their friends and neighbors. We have a few, a small few, who grab the headlines and embarrass me and shame me. Just being honest with you. You come ask me later who they are. They get up there and they grab the headlines and they represent Christianity in ways that are very poor, I think. And so they get a whole bunch of people across the nation, leaders that you would all respect, got together and said, here's what we believe. It's a very long document, but here's how they conclude. The last section. It's an invitation to all. As stated earlier, we who signed this declaration do not presume to speak for all evangelicals. We speak only for ourselves, yet not only to ourselves. We therefore invite all of our fellow Christians, our fellow citizens, and people of different faiths across the nation and around the world to take serious note of these declarations and to respond where appropriate. So in the final section, he address, they address fellow evangelicals, fellow citizens, adherents to other faith, those who report and analyze public affairs, those who are in positions of power and authority, those who are dedicated to caring for the poor and the suffering, 
And here's the last one. We urge those who suffer or who search for meaning and belonging amidst the chaos of contemporary philosophies and the brokenness and alienation of modern society. That's our world, isn't it? That's our world. When those of us that are older, when we grow up, news was facts, not opinions. Weren't they? I read recently that the average millennial is exposed to 300 gigabytes of unfiltered data every day. How on earth are they supposed to make a decision? So we urge those who search for meaning and belonging in the middle of all this chaos to consider that the gospel we have found to be the good news is in fact the best news ever. This is what it means to be an evangelical. This is what we profess. That the gospel we believe in is actually the best news ever. And it's open to all who would come and discover what we now enjoy and would share. Finally, we solemnly pledge that in a world of lies, hype, and spin, where truth is commonly dismissed and words suffer from severe inflation, I love that, we make this declaration in words that have been carefully chosen and weighed. Words that under God we make our bond. People of the good news, we desire not just to speak the good news, but to embody and be the good news to our world and to our generation. That's how it concludes. Evangelical Manifesto. I'm proud to say I don't mind the term. I'm willing to be called an evangelical. And if it means I get spit on, then I'm going to engage and talk to him about what does that mean? And it's not what the press makes it out to be. That means I am a lover of the one true God, Jesus. And I believe in the good news that his son came to rescue us from sin. How's your courage? How's your courage? Can I ask the ushers to come forward in just a moment and take the offering? You have in your bulletin this handout, this insert right here. I want you to take a look at it. On one side, these are areas that we can use help with. I just said it, we need your help. We really do need your help. On the other side is a place to put your name. One of the things I'm deeply grateful for is that you are all very generous in your giving. We've already met our budget. Year's not even over yet. We've already met our budget. You know why? Because a bunch of you sensed the Holy Spirit and saw what happened with the amphitheater and you gave extra money and you told us that's what you're doing. You blessed us. So you know what our elders have done? We've taken that extra money and they've reserved it because next year we have the same problem in reverse. The first five Sundays of the summer, we can't go to the amphitheater because they're still rebuilding it. So the first half of the summer, we'll be back in here. And so several of you recognize that and you already filled our coffers just like with Joseph and Pharaoh. Thank you. We are blessed because of you. Now I'm going to ask you to go one step further and look beyond the credit card because you are a blessing as well. You realize that? You're a resource. We could use your help. What I'm going to ask you to do is if you see something on there, check it off. If you just want to get involved and that doesn't interest you, it doesn't matter, put your name on here and put it in the offering basket when it goes through. Put it in the offering basket. Somebody will call you. Okay? Father, you are so good to us. Thank you. Thank you for these people. 
they're so generous, loving. Thank you for being a God who walks in our midst, who laughs with us, and who corrects us. It helps us to relax. It helps us to stay faithful, to stay confident. Thank you. Recharge our spirits in the midst of a world that is sapping our strength. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for your generosity.